The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the life, he who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other thing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we get started, we need to make sure that we are in fellowship. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you know that your sins are paid for completely and totally by Jesus Christ on the cross. All sins are therefore forgiven positionally. But when we sin in time, as we go through our life and we all sin, that separates us from fellowship from God. It breaks down the process of Christian growth called sanctification, and it quenches the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. So God has given us a grace procedure for recovering from sin. It's simple admission or acknowledgement of our sin to God. And 1 John 1.9 tells us that if we admit or acknowledge our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Every now and then somebody says, well, you do this at the beginning of every class. It almost gets mechanical. Well, every skill starts with mechanics, whether you're a ballerina or a piano player or a football player. And so it should not be mechanical, but one of the reasons I do that is so that it gets drilled into your practice that you should be uh, consistently applying the principles of 1 John 1.9. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, you are the God of history. You created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. You created time. You had a plan for human history. And you, as things go from year to year, day to day, we see the outworking of that plan. That plan began several thousand years ago, and it is moving inexorably towards a specific future where there will be a resolution of all evil, where justice will be displayed on planet Earth. And you have revealed the scope of your plan to us so that we are not historically ignorant, neither are we unaware of the future. And as we continue to study about future things, the doctrines of eschatology, we pray that they might encourage us to greater obedience, stimulate us to faithful study of your word, And that we might be reminded that at any moment our Lord may return for for us. And Father, now as we study these things this morning, help us to concentrate and to focus 
to learn from your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're studying something known as the rapture, the pre-tribulation rapture. This is based on our study in Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, where our Lord promised the Philadelphian church, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. This is a clear promise that the believers, church age believers, uh, which we are, will not go through this period of human history known as the uh, hour of trial, this test that will come upon all those who dwell upon the earth. The purpose for that period of testing is to focus on the nation of Israel, as we shall see in our study today. The key phrase here, to keep you from the hour of trial, is one we focused on the last few weeks. It has the idea of being delivered from something without ever entering into it. There are those who believe that the church somehow goes through the tribulation period, and they would take this Greek preposition ek, out from, as meaning they're in the tribulation, but they're somehow isolated, insulated from it. However, the word ek, this preposition, has the idea, when it's used with this type of verb, has the idea of being kept away from something. That's a good way to put it. It hit me this morning on my way here. Kept away from, so that they never enter into the tribulation at all. Our Lord used it the same way when He prayed to the Father just before He went to the cross. Father, save me from this hour. He didn't want to enter into that period of testing on the cross when the sins of the world would be poured out upon him. That's what happened on the cross between 12 noon and 3 p.m. On that day, that was the Passover day in the Jewish calendar, Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God, the antitype that was pictured from 1446 B.C. forward by the Lamb that was slain at the Passover meal, a lamb that was without spot or blemish, a lamb that was chosen, a lamb that was observed and examined to make sure that it was without blemish, without fault, that that lamb was a picture of Jesus Christ. And that lamb was without uh, blemish because that pictured the sinlessness of Jesus Christ, that he was sinless. He was born without sin, without a sin nature. He lived his life without any personal sin. Therefore, he was qualified to go to the cross on our behalf. He is our substitute. He truly, completely, sufficiently paid the penalty for all of our sins so that there is nothing that we do to earn or deserve salvation. It is a free gift. We simply believe that he died on the cross for us. But in his humanity, he had anxiety, apprehension about the cross and the suffering that he would go through as a man. He recognized the pain that he would encounter when the sins of the world were poured out upon him. And so in his humanity, we see his vulnerability, his weakness. There's no sin here. It is simply a, a typical expression of the, uh, of the frailty of his own humanity. Father, deliver me, deliver me from this hour. But he recognized it was for this purpose, that is, to go through that time on the cross, that he came to the earth. 
but he w- was praying. I mean, the grammar that we're looking at is this idea that he would be kept completely from it without ever entering into it. So this is why we hold to a pre-trib rapture that Revelation 3.10 teaches us that as believers we won't go through the tribulation. So the question is then, how are we kept from it? And that is this doctrine of the rapture. Now we've been going through this for several weeks because I've decided that I'm going to do an exhaustive study on this and we're going to deal with it in all of its various dimensions there are a number of people who constantly come with questions they've read somebody they heard somebody on the radio and they want to know what is the basis for our belief in a pre-tribulation rapture we need to understand these things so we're answering two questions what is the rapture that is just in terms of definition and when is the rapture the second question is the one we are now answering and have been answering for the last uh, two weeks. What is the rapture? Just to remind you, the rapture is the resurrection of all dead church-age believers and the translation of all living believers from the earth at the end of the church age before the tribulation begins. It doesn't affect Old Testament believers. They don't get resurrected till the end of the tribulation. It is just those believers who have died from the day of Pentecost up to the time of the rapture. Those who are dead are caught up to be with uh, the Lord in the air, and then we who are alive and remain are caught up together with them. This is 1 Thessalonians 4.16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up. That's our word harpazo, translated rapturo in the Latin, which is where we get our word rapture, caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will ever be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. It always fascinates me how when the Apostle Paul wants to deal with very practical issues like comforting one another at the time of death or in difficulty, he goes to what many people today would call some sort of abstract theological doctrine. And you always hear the whiner say, why do we have to study doctrine? Why do we have to understand all this? Because it changes the way you live. Once it changes the way you think, it changes the way you live, changes the way you respond to difficulty, to adversity, gives us peace, stability, confidence in what we understand about the Lord, and we can have security and stability in our understanding of the Scriptures. So then we address this question of when is the rapture. And we are focusing on the view that the rapture occurs prior to the tribulation a view known as the pre-tribulation rapture, pre-meaning before, that Jesus Christ returns in the clouds for the church before the rapture occurs. That means that church-age believers will not go through the tribulation and that the tribulation begins sometime after the church age ends. The rapture does not begin the tribulation. A lot of folks get that idea. Another event, which we'll look at in a moment, is what begins the tribulation, period. Now, I put this chart up on the board last week. It's uh, building a house. A house has a foundation. On that foundation, you build uh, your floors, uh, build your walls. And this is a picture of how, uh, how we understand certain doctrines. 
The foundation we looked at last time has to do with literal interpretation of Scripture. And we believe that the Bible is to be interpreted according to the normal, plain use of language, which would include figures of speech, and that unless there are contextual clues otherwise, that we always take the Bible at face value. When we do that, we come to an understanding of uh, the future things known as premillennialism. This is the idea that Jesus Christ will return to the earth. Remember, the rapture is just in the clouds, but that Jesus Christ will return to the earth before the millennial kingdom is set up. That millennial kingdom is the same kingdom that is mentioned in the Old Testament, anticipated throughout the Old Testament, announced by John the Baptist, Jesus, and his disciples during the first advent, but was rejected by the Jews, known as the Messianic kingdom, when Jesus Christ comes to rule and reign in history from the throne of David in Jerusalem. And so this is known as premillennialism. It was the view of the early church then, uh, during the Middle Ages, it dropped out and then as as uh, after the Reformation, as Christians began to return to a literal understanding of Scripture, premillennialism was uh, rediscovered, taught, and came into its own again in the 19th century. Also, futurism, the idea that biblical prophecy in certain passages such as Matthew 24, Revelation 4 through 19 are yet future and they have not already occurred. And then the last thing we looked at last time was the distinction between Israel and church. That the Bible teaches that God has a plan for the nation Israel, the physical ethnic descendants of Abraham, known today as the Jews. And then there is a distinct body of believers known as the church. And the church did not begin until the day of Pentecost. And the church goes to be with the Lord at the rapture. At that point, this is crucial for understanding the nature of the tribulation, which is why I want to go back and look at the passage I concluded with last time to make sure you understand its significance. The Israel church distinction is built on a number of different scriptures. I mentioned some passages in Romans chapter 11 last time, but one of the most significant is a passage in Daniel, known as Daniel's 70th week. This was a vision that God gave Daniel regarding the future of his people, that is, the nation Israel. Daniel was one of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament. He did not hold the office of prophet, though. He operated in a pagan Gentile empire, first the Babylonian Empire and then the Empire of the Medes and the Persians. And as he got towards the end of his life, when he was in his 70s, he began to recognized that the time that God had designated for Israel's discipline, the reason they were out of the land, they had been conquered by Nebuchadnezzar in 586 B.C., the reason they were out of the land was because of disobedience, and that would be a certain period of time that they would be out of the land, and Daniel recognized that this time was about up, and so around 539 uh, BC, he began to pray to God that God would give him insight into when the nation would be allowed to return to the land. And in Daniel 9.16, he prayed, O Lord, in accordance with all thy righteous acts, let now thine anger and thy wrath, terms used for the 
uh, execution of divine justice on the nation. Let now thine anger and thy wrath turn away from what? Number one, thy holy, number one, the city Jerusalem, and number two, thy holy mountain. The city Jerusalem is the city of uh, the, the city that God has chosen for himself where his presence dwelt in the temple. The holy mountain is the location of the temple, the temple mount in Jerusalem. Today it is dominated by an Islamic mosque known as the Dome of the Rock. Uh, but at the time of David, that temple had also been destroyed. It was destroyed in 586 and there was nothing there uh, but rubble. And God had destroyed Israel the northern kingdom in 722 and the southern kingdom in 586 because of their disobedience to God and fulfillment of divine prophecy and mandates back in Deuteronomy 28 through 30. As Daniel recognizes, this happened because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers. And he recognized that at that time, as today, Jerusalem and thy people have become a reproach to all those around us. And in verse 17 he said, So now our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his supplications, and for thy sake, O Lord, let thy face shine on thy desolate sanctuary. And so he is praying that God will allow, he's confessing the sins of the nation as one who stands as a mediator for the nation, confessing their sins, calling upon God to restore them to the land. And the angel Gabriel appeared to him and gave him a vision, an explanation of the vision, and that's in verses 24 and following. It's 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. Notice how that runs true from what has been said back in verse 16 and 17. We know that your people and your holy city refer in context in the historical situation not to the church, not to Gentiles, but to the Jews. Your people and your holy city, that is Jerusalem, and a sixfold purpose would take place, which would bring to completion the redemptive work of God in history. It began with the work of Christ on the cross, where he provided full and complete atonement, but it will be fully enacted in history when Jesus Christ returns at the second coming. So we have these six purposes that will be brought to their fruition, their conclusion at the end of the tribulation to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up it's the idea of completion, to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy place. So, Daniel is told, you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree, to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, not to just to return. See, Cyrus issued a decree under Zerubbabel for them to return to the land, but not to rebuild the city, not to rebuild the temple. This is an issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild. That has the idea of rebuilding the walls to protect and fortify Jerusalem, which would indicate that it was an, would be a, an independent autonomous city. From the issuing of this decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there would be a, a period of 69 weeks. Now, it's broken down into first seven weeks and then 62 weeks. Math time. Seven and, 69, seven and 62 is how much? I gave you the answer tonight. 69. Good. Just want to make sure you're awake this morning. Okay, that's 69 weeks. That, but 70 weeks have been decreed. So there's one week left over. Now, these weeks 
must be understood not as seven days, but literally in the Hebrew it says 70 periods of seven. So the, the, the question is, are these days, weeks, months, or years? And they're years. And so I uh, then put up a chart, which we'll look at in a minute. You have a copy of Daniel 9.26. Then after the 62 weeks, there seems to be a break between the 62nd week and the 70th week. After the 62 weeks is not in the 70th week. See? It's just after the 62 weeks. Seven weeks, then 62. So it's literally after that 69th week, but before the 70th week begins. The Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. That's a prophecy of the crucifixion. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city. Well, when was Jerusalem destroyed? It was destroyed in A.D. 70 under the Roman armies, Roman legions of Titus. And he is the prince who was to come. And the people would be, his people would be whom? Rome. So this indicates that the future Antichrist would be of the same origin. That is Roman. That's one of our bases for thinking that the uh, Antichrist comes out of a revived Roman Empire of Europe. Uh, It may or may not be the... uh, uh, EU as it is today, but the EU is certainly a precursor of that kind of organization. What's interesting is that the the kingdom of the Antichrist is pictured as a woman riding a beast in Revelation. And when we get there, I'll show you some pictures taken off of some uh, coins, some uh, uh, EU coins, some of the euros, where they have a picture of Europa riding a bull. And this is uh, the exact image of what is portrayed in, uh, in Revelation. So there are many people who think that this is a precursor of that organization because of that, that imagery that's used there. So in history, though, we know that the prince of the people who is to come destroyed the city and the sanctuary. The temple was destroyed in A.D. 70. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined. Now that's the end of the historical period of those 69 weeks. And then we're told about the 70th week. So there's this gap that occurs between the 69th week and the 70th week. And then when the 70th week begins, we're told, and he will make a firm covenant with the many for one Week. That's that 70th week, known as Daniel's 70th week. And the he here is the prince of the people who is to come. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, for that seven-year period. That peace treaty that will bring peace to the Middle East, and Lord knows we don't have it now, we haven't had it since the Jews established a state in Israel and declared their independence in May of 1948. And there will not be peace in that area until this pseudo-peace is established by the signing of this peace treaty between the Antichrist and the nation Israel. So and that tells you that there has to be a nation Israel, a national entity there at the beginning of the tribulation, not a nation in, that is regenerate, but an unregenerate Nation that has, secular nation that has returned to the land, which begins to fulfill some of the prophecies. So we're told he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. Now, if, if this period of time is seven years, 
What's the halfway point? Three and a half years. So three and a half years into that period, there is a desecration of the temple, which is known as the abomination of desolation in Matthew 24, based on this passage, that he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. The one who makes desolate is the Antichrist. He's destroyed and sent to the lake of fire at the end of the tribulation period. Okay, let's look at the math here. There's a decree to restore and rebuild that is given by Artaxerxes, the king of the Persian Empire, and we can date that historically to March the 5th, 444 B.C. It's indicated in Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. So Daniel said there would be seven weeks and 62 weeks, so that's 69 weeks before Messiah the Prince would come. And we know that Jesus entered into Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday, March the 30th, A.D. 33, a triumphal entry mentioned in Luke 19, 28 to 40. This is designated for your people and for your city, the nation Israel, right? So 70 times 7 is 490 years. 69 times 7 is 483 years or 173,880 days. Now, let's take a little sidestep and figure out how we do the calculation on this. These are based on, we, we believe that prophetic years, and when you study prophecy in Scripture, a prophetic year isn't a solar 365 point something day year. It was a lunar year based on a lunar calendar. 30-day months, and every few years they had to enter into an adjustment. That's why uh, Jewish Passover fluctuates every year. It's, the, it's based on the first uh, new, new full moon after the spring equinox. Okay, you have uh, several terms that are used for this same period of time in prophetic scripture. Daniel talks about this half week in Daniel 9.27, in the middle of the week. Uh, another reference given in Daniel 7.25, 12.7, Revelation 12.14 refers to this period as a time, times, and a half a time. Seems like a rather mysterious uh, phrase for some people, and they think, oh, you've got to consult your crystal ball to figure this out. No, you just have to compare Scripture with Scripture. In Revelation 12.6, it's referred to as 1,260 days. In Revelation 11.2 and 13.5, that same period is referred to as 42 months. Well, you can pretty much do the math here and realize that if 42 months equals 1,260 days, and that equals time, one, singular, times, two, plural, and a half a time, so that would be three and a half, right? You end up that a month equals 30 days, and a year would equal 360 days, and that would be the same as three and a half years or the halfway point. So this gives us a time frame. Now, let's do the calculations. If you take 69 weeks times seven, 69 periods of seven, you come up with, uh, and then multiply that by 360 days, you get that figure, 173,880 days. From March the 5th, 444 B.C., 
to March the 30th, A.D. 33 is exactly 173,880 days. See, God doesn't say, well, he's going to come about this time. I mean, this is one of the most incredible prophecies of Scripture. It is a, a prophecy made in approximately 539 B.C., some 570 years before Jesus Christ came, telling exactly when the Messiah would be uh, would enter into Jerusalem and when he would be rejected. We can verify the math here if we take 444 B.C. and add it to uh, 33, we come up with 477, and then subtract 1 because there's no year 0. That comes up to 476 years. We take the 476 years and then multiply that by what we know to be the accurate calculation of a year, 365.2421989 days, we come out with the same figure, 173,800, and oh, here we come out with 173,855 days. And then we add in the number of days between March the 5th and March the 30th. March the 5th was the date of the decree. March the 30th is the date Jesus entered into Jerusalem. And that comes to 173,880 days. So isn't that remarkable? See, that was one of the uh, criterion for knowing prophecy was that it came to pass exactly as it was told. So Jesus is just in accidentally come into Jerusalem then. It just didn't happen. This had been prophesied by the Lord uh, some 560 or 70 years earlier. So now let's take that and apply it to our time frame. We have the 69 weeks complete when Messiah the Prince comes. Then he's cut off. This happens, remember, the text said, after the 69th week. But it implies that there's a gap of undetermined time between the 69th week and the 70th week. So we have uh, 69 weeks. What happens to the other seven years? Where'd that go? Well, that's still future. It hasn't happened yet. Daniel 9.26 said, Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war, desolations are determined. And there's a picture of the Dome of the Rock sitting on the site where the temple should be. So what happened after the Messiah the Prince was cut off was that there was judgment on the temple and it was destroyed in A.D. 70. Then we have the church age. But then the coming prince, the prince of the people who is to come, not the Messiah, will establish this peace treaty with Israel. This begins the 70th week of Daniel. That's what starts the tribulation. So there's a time period between the rapture and the beginning of the tribulation of some, I don't know, six weeks, six months, six years. Nobody knows. There's a transition period uh, that will take place, and then there's this peace treaty that's signed, and that's the countdown for the seven years of the tribulation. And then Jesus Christ returns to the earth at the end of that tribulation period. So the, these, this period of time here was designated for who? For your people and for your city. So this has to do with God's purposes for Israel, not the church. There's this distinction that must be maintained throughout Scripture between God's plan for Israel 
and God's plan for the church. That's why when we look at events that are going on in the Middle East today, it should get our attention a little bit. It doesn't mean that prophecy is being fulfilled. In fact, I'm going to come back and address this in a lot more detail in probably three or four weeks. I want to do an expanded study of what I did when I was in Preston, Connecticut a month ago and do a, uh, a series on, the, uh, on Jerusalem and Israel in history and prophecy. And that will probably run, I'm going to do that Tuesday, Thursday, Tuesday, Thursday, Tuesday, Thursday until I finish it. It's going to be a compact study. So that will probably begin sometime in, uh, in September. So this period of time is designated for Israel, not for the church. So if the period of the tribulation down here is for the, for the Jews, then the church can't be there, can it? It must be removed because God's going to shift his focus back to Israel to bring to completion his plan for Israel. That's why Romans chapter 8, verses 25, 26, 27 talk about that uh, God will pour out his blessing until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in and then he will return his focus to Israel. So we have to maintain this distinction between Israel and and the church. Okay, so we then come to our next plank. Once we understand literal interpretation, premillennialism, futurism, and a distinction between Israel and the church, we have our foundation laid. This comes from detailed exegesis, not just theology, folks. This comes from exegeting numerous passages. I'm just giving you the theological conclusion. So we have our foundation laid, and then on that we can come to understand uh, distinctions in various passages in Scripture. So we have contrast between the comings uh, of, of Christ in the future. Now let me set this up for you. This isn't something that is rammed or crammed or jammed into the text. This is something that we have biblical precedence for and from the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Old Testament tended to telescope the two future comings of Christ into one. But we know that there are two comings of Christ. The first is when he came to the cross to pay for our sins, and the second is when he comes to be crowned and to rule and reign on planet Earth. Now, it was not always clear to the Old Testament student of the Scriptures or to the Jews that there was a distinction between these two comings of Christ. They tended to, to, to fold them up together into one, and so this is a problem that affected the Pharisees at the first advent. They thought the crown came before the cross. They wanted a glorious Messiah who would defeat Rome rather than a suffering Messiah that would pay for their sins. So when Jesus came, lowly and humble as a servant, ready to die on the cross and to die for our sins, they rejected him because he didn't fit their idea of what the Messiah was supposed to be doing. They had become confused between first advent and second advent. We see this distinction and how subtle this is in the scripture in two key passages. Luke chapter 4, verse 16 and following. Open your Bibles there. You want to make sure you put some notes in there when we, as we go through Luke 4. And in Luke 4, we're going to see the Lord Jesus Christ 
quote from Isaiah chapter 61. And it's very important to see what the Lord does with Isaiah chapter 61. This is, this is one of the great fun passages of Scripture that helps you understand uh, wh- why people think that everything that, that one, there's only one coming or that the second coming isn't broken into two phases, a rapture and then seven years later or so the second coming of Christ. Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, as was his custom, and he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he stood up to read. He opened the book of Isaiah. This is what was handed to him. He opened the book, actually a scroll, and he found the place where it was written, which tells us that he was specifically looking for this passage. He had a purpose. He's not just being given any old passage to read. It's not just whatever happened that day. But he chose Isaiah 61, 1 through 2 to read because he wanted to make a point. So he opened it to Isaiah 61 and he began to read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. See, he is showing that he's the fulfillment of this prophecy made to, through Isaiah in the uh, 8th century B.C. Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And then he stopped. And he closed the book. And he gave it back to the attendant. And he sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now I want you to note what he did with Isaiah 61. So you might want to write in your margin a reference, make sure there's a cross-reference there to Isaiah 61 so you can find this later on. And we'll go to Isaiah 61. It looks to me like I lost the beginning of my slide. Okay, Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah 61. It's a direct quote. We read just what I just read a minute ago. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, and to proclaim to the, the acceptable year of the Lord. And he stopped. That's where Jesus stopped. But you see, in the, Hebrew, in the prophecy in the Old Testament, verses 1 and 2 seem like they run together. But what Jesus is saying is, with his first coming is being fulfilled up to the end of that first line to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. The next line reads, and the day of vengeance of our God, that's a reference to the tribulation, to the day of Jacob's trouble. See, between verse 1 and 2a and 2b and following, you have at least 2,000 years of the church age. But that's telescoped in this one verse. The first part refers to first advent reality, and the second part refers to second advent reality. Isaiah 61.3 goes on to read, To grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning. This is what happens in the restoration of Israel at the second coming. Now this chart presents a fundamental 
principle of understanding Old Testament prophecy. It's a chart of several mountaintops. And on the left you have a prophet who is uh, looking across this range of mountains. If you've ever driven up to Colorado or driven to any place where there are high mountains, as you're two or three hundred miles away, you begin to see the high mountains on, on the horizon. And it just looks as if you have one mountaintop after another. And you may not realize it until you come right into the mountains themselves that there may be an enormous valley between these two mountains. And that's what this is a picture of. As the prophet on the left looks down through the corridors of time, he saw certain events, mountains as it were, the birth of Jesus, the death of Jesus, that is, first advent truth. The coming of the Antichrist, the seven-year tribulation, the uh, second coming of Jesus Christ, and the ultimate destruction of the earth. He saw these, but he did not necessarily see the valleys of time that would lie between these events. And so we have here in this chart the first advent realities of the birth and the death of Jesus. And then in the valley between the death of Christ and the arrival of the Antichrist, you have the valley of the church, the church age period of time. It was not seen in the Old Testament. That's why the New Testament refers to it as a mystery. It was unrevealed to Old Testament prophets. So they're looking ahead and they're just seeing these these uh, events and they tended to uh, crunch them together. And that's why the Lord is reading from Isaiah 61. He reads down to the middle of verse 2 and stops. That much is first advent. We have the same thing happen with relation to second coming passages. There are portions of these passages that refer to the rapture, which is phase one of the second coming, separated by seven or eight, nine years or so from the second coming when he comes to the earth. So we have this distinction between, uh, just as we had a distinction between the two comings of Christ to the earth, we have distinctions between the rapture and the crown of Jesus, or the rule of Jesus as Messiah. Now, I also gave you this as a handout because I didn't want you trying to write down all of these references. You have certain passages that in the Scripture that are clearly rapture passages, passages like John 14, 1 through 3, Romans 8, 19, 1 Corinthians 1, 7 and 8, 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 33, and so on. And these are clearly distinct from second coming passages. If you just look at all these references, which I have up on the screen, one of the first things you should observe is that there are no Old Testament passages on the left side of the screen. Why? The church wasn't revealed in the Old Testament, so the end of the church wasn't revealed in the Old Testament. No passages in the Old Testament related to the rapture whatsoever. They all relate to the second coming. And this is not an exhaustive list. There are passages, many passages in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, uh, some here I have in Daniel, Daniel 2, 44 to 45, Daniel 7, 9 to 14, Daniel 12, 1 to 3, Zechariah 12, 10, Zechariah 14, 1 through 5, and then a host of New Testament passages. But there is a distinction that we must understand between the rapture, which is Jesus Christ coming for the church, and the second coming, which is when Jesus Christ comes to deliver Israel. Remember that church? 
Israel distinction. So let's look at some of the distinctions between the rapture and the second coming. Differences between the rapture and the second coming. First of all, at the rapture, there is a translation of all believers, an instantaneous translation that takes place in the uh, twinkling of an eye when we immediately go from mortal bodies to immortal bodies, from corruptible bodies to incorruptible bodies, and we receive our resurrection body. But at the second coming of Christ to the earth, there is no translation of saints. There is no event that takes place at that point where the tribulation believers receive their resurrection bodies. Those who die during the tribulation have received their resurrection bodies, but those who are alive at the end of the tribulation go right on into the millennial kingdom to repopulate the earth during the millennial kingdom in their mortal bodies. Second contrast, at the rapture, translated saints go with Jesus to heaven. That John 14, 1-3, that where I am, there you may be also. But at the rapture, at the second coming, translated saints are returning with Jesus to the earth. That is important. The second coming is to the earth. The rapture is in the clouds. Third contrast. At the rapture, earth is not judged. There's no judgment on the earth. There's no judgment of the unbelievers and believers at the rapture. But at the second coming, the earth is judged and righteousness is established. There is a judgment Uh, This is the separation of the sheep and the goats, the sheep and the goat judgment mentioned in Matthew uh, chapter 13. Fourth, the rapture is an imminent, any moment event. Nothing has to happen before the rapture occurs. There's no prophecy that needs to be fulfilled before the rapture. It is signless. But the second coming follows definite, specific, predicted signs indicated in passages such as Matthew 24, and it can only come after a seven-year period of tribulation. So if we're to be looking, anticipating, waiting eagerly for the uh, coming of our Lord right now, uh, we'd be somewhat, if, if, if that's not going to happen until the, after the tribulation, then uh, we can't wait too eagerly because we'd have to go through the tribulation first. Fifth, The rapture is not predicted in the Old Testament, but the second coming of Christ to the earth to establish his kingdom is predicted in numerous passages in the Old Testament. So rapture is absent from the Old Testament, not in Jeremiah, not in Ezekiel, not in Daniel. We can go to those passages to, as I did with Daniel 9, to show that there is a gap there in God's plan for Israel and that there is a future restoration of Israel which suggests, implies, that the church must be removed. Sixth, the rapture is for believers only, those who are in Christ, according to 1 Thessalonians 4, 16-18. But the second coming will affect all mankind. Everybody will see him come. He will come to the earth and he will end the tribulation and there will be judgment. So the second coming affects everybody. Seventh, the rapture occurs before the day of wrath, as we'll see from several passages. It happens before the day of wrath, whereas the second coming concludes, ends, brings the day of wrath to its Final conclusion. Eighth, 
at the rapture, there's no reference to Satan whatsoever. None of the rapture passages make any reference to the rest of mankind other than the church or to Satan. But at the second coming, we're told that Satan will be bound for a thousand years. He will be bound. He will be received. He will not be able to influence history at all during the millennial kingdom. Ninth, at the rapture, Jesus Christ comes for his own. At the second coming, he comes with his own. Vital distinction. At the rapture, he comes for us. At the second coming, we are with him. Tenth, Christ comes in the clouds. At the rapture, he comes to the earth at the second coming. This is why I often emphasize Jesus Christ comes in the air, in the clouds, for the church. And the second coming is he comes to the earth with the church, and I'll see him. Eleventh point, Christ claims his bride. He comes for his bride and at the rapture, but he comes with his bride at the second coming. Why? Because the wedding feast has taken place in heaven. And so there has to be time for that, as we'll see in just a minute. Twelfth, only his own see him at the rapture, but every eye will see him at the second coming. Only his own see him at the, first, at the rapture, but every eye will see him at the second coming. So you see, these events are clearly distinguished in Scripture. It's not just some doctrine that uh, some uh, I- Irish theologian came up with because uh, he had a bad night's sleep back in the 1830s or he heard it from, you know, the, the, the canard that you always hear is that he got it from uh, the ecstatic utterance of Margaret MacDonald and that's been proven to be absolutely false on a number of occasions. But you'll still, there used to be a guy da- uh, who would go into Dallas Seminary and he would put these little things that he had written uh, against the rapture in all the, all the books and you'd run into them every now and then. And uh, he just hated the whole concept of dispensations and pre-trib rapture. Thirteen, after the rapture, the tribulation begins. But after the second coming, the messianic kingdom begins. So there is a distinction. After the rapture, the tribulation begins, and literally all hell breaks loose on the earth. But after the second coming, it is a time of unprecedented peace and prosperity on the earth because Jesus Christ will rule and reign from the throne of David in Jerusalem. Okay, that establishes the contrast between the comings. Another reason there must be a distinction between the rapture and the second coming is because certain things have to happen during that interval. There are things that are described in the book of Revelation that that must take place. The rapture can't happen just right up against the second coming because there are a number of things that transpire between these two events. And so we have a little chart here. The first that we have is the worship of God in the heavens by the 24 elders who represent the church in the, uh, during this period of the tribulation period. This is what's going on in heaven. This is Revelation chapter 4 and 5. At the same time, there is the judgment seat of Christ, the judgment of all church age believers. The Bema seat has to take place during this period of time. And then the marriage supper of the Lamb takes place in the heavenlies prior to the return of Christ. So there has to be some sort of time gap here to allow for all of these things to take place. 
the 24 elders, the Bema Seed, and the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. Then we have the doctrine of imminency. Now, we studied this already, the doctrine of imminency, that Christ could come at any time. Here's our definition. The any-moment return of Jesus Christ, that no prophecy needs to be fulfilled before Jesus can come, come again. The Oxford English Dictionary defines the word imminent as meaning something that hangs overhead, something that is constantly ready to befall or overtake one, something that's close at hand in its incident. It can happen today. It could happen tonight. Are we ready? It's certain it will occur, but it is uncertain when it will occur. It's not contingent on any other events, and there's no prophesied event that comes between now and the rapture of the church. We are to eagerly wait for him. Hebrews 9.28 says, So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time. See, it's not to all the world, it's to those who eagerly Wait for him. He will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Now, this word eagerly wait is a fascinating word. It pictures an eager expectation indicated by the head bent forward to catch the first glance of an advancing procession. I remember when the first time I went to a Christmas parade, I was about four years old in Toronto, Canada, and I just, you know, I remember trying to get past all the crowd, look around everybody, and look down to see when Santa would come. You know, maybe you have a memory, something like that. You just, you're just out there, you're just pushing everybody back, and you're leaning into the crowd, and your, your dad or your mom's holding you back, because you can't wait to see something coming. That's this picture here. We eagerly await the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ at the rapture. Frederick Godet, a French theologian commentator of the 19th century, wrote, It is one of those admirable words that the Greek language easily forms. It means to wait with the head raised and the eye fixed on that point of the horizon from which the expected object is to come. We anticipate the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, we haven't quite finished. We'll finish up next time with the nature of the tribulation and several other planks. We'll wrap up our study of the pre-trib rapture next time, and then we will be ready to go into the important warning section in Revelation chapter 3, a crucial section that we're going to get into in this particular passage. Someone asked me not long ago, well, if Jesus died for all our sins and everything's paid for, then why don't we just do whatever we want to do? And that is because the difference is not fear or guilt uh, that we may lose our salvation, but it is an awareness, a motivation that we are to serve the Lord and an awareness of what is happening today in terms of being trained for the future. And that's we're going to get into a great passage here at the end of the, uh, the short evaluation report to the Philadelphia church. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Father, we do thank you so much for your word, for all these fascinating passages of Scripture that teach us about your plan, your purposes for Israel, for the church, that everything in history focused on that one crucial event that took place on Golgotha and approximately... A.D. 33, when Jesus Christ, the eternal second person of the Trinity who had entered into human history, 
who became flesh and dwelt among us, was crucified, was hung on that cross, and during those three critical hours, you imputed to him the sins of every one of us, the sins of the entire human race, and he bore in his body on the tree the penalty for our sin, so that all we need to do is to put our faith alone in him, to trust him to deliver us from the penalty of sin. Now, Father, there may be some here this morning who are unsure of their salvation, uncertain of their eternal destiny. Perhaps they've relied upon their own works, church involvement, church attendance, uh, doing good, uh, any number of different factors that human beings and their uh, failures think impress you. But we know only one thing impresses you, and that is the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so right now, right where you sit, if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, this is your opportunity to do so. This is your opportunity to realize that your salvation is certain and secure in the completed work of Christ on the cross. And that when you trust in Him and Him alone, you have eternal life. Father, we know that you have a marvelous future for us, that you have planned out every detail, and that it will be glorious beyond our greatest imagination. Father, we pray that we might be prepared and ready for your coming and for our role and destiny in your future kingdom. Now, Father, we pray that you would not let us overlook the things that we have learned today, but that they would challenge us to grow, to press on, to make doctrine the highest priority in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.